This is Book Club Cheats, a podcast for book clubbers who just can't seem to find the time to read. I'm your host, Lippy Turner-Roman, and today we'll be talking about The Midnight Library by Matt Hay. Regrets. Who doesn't have them? I certainly have a whole bag full. Do you wonder what your life would have been like if you had made different choices? The Midnight Library by Matt Hay explores depression and how the weight of regrets can overwhelm individuals and speaks to letting go of those regrets and ultimately embracing and living life to the fullest. Just a warning, this book and this episode have a trigger for suicide. Matt Haig has dealt with mental health issues himself and has been vocal about depression in his other writings. In terms of genre, The Midnight Library is a sci-fi contemporary philosophy mix It does cover some very serious topics, depression, suicide, regrets, parental and societal expectations, parental and sibling death, and the push and pull of relationships. The Midnight Library is prefaced with a quote by Sylvia Plath. I can never be all the people I want and live all the lives I want. I can never train myself in all the skills I want. And why do I want? I want to live and feel all the shades, tones, variations of mental and physical experience possible in my life. At the centre of the Midnight Library is Nora Sneed's regrets, with her life choices, the expectations and dreams that she and others have hung on her. Nora is fragile, desperate, a loving sister, a good and loving daughter, a good friend, a kind neighbour, a good teacher, and obviously a survivor. We know this, but Nora cannot see it herself. The Midnight Library poses the question, what is the best way to live? And would you do anything different if you had the chance to undo all your regrets? We first meet Nora Sneed at the school library, playing chess with the librarian, Mrs. Elm. Nora is second-guessing her decision to quit competitive swimming. Her father thinks that Nora just threw her life away. Mrs. Elm reassures Nora that she has the potential to be anything she wants to be. The phone rings, telling them that Nora's father just died of a heart attack. 19 years later, Nora has left lots of her dreams behind. She's still in Bedford, in a dead-end job, depressed and filled to the brim with regrets. Nora returned home when her mom got cancer. She left the labyrinths, a rock band her brother Joe and his friend Ravi formed, just as they got a record deal. Nora opted not to go out for coffee with that nice doctor, Ash, because she was dating Dan at the time. She didn't go to Australia with her best friend, Izzy, because she was planning her wedding to Dan instead. Nora's mother died soon after, and Nora left Dan two days before the wedding. Nora is having a really, really, really bad day. She's seriously depressed. She wakes up to find her cat's been run over, You know things are really bad when Nora is jealous that her cat Voltaire, Volt for sure, escaped this miserable world before she did. Nora gets fired from her job at the music store. Her boss thinks her face is depressing the customers. Joe, her brother, returned to Bedford to visit friends but didn't get into contact with her. She has a nasty altercation with Ravi, who holds Nora personally responsible for not being a famous rock star. Nora loses her only piano student, Leo Thompson. Mr. Banerjee, Nora's elderly neighbour, tells her he doesn't need her anymore. The chemist will deliver all his prescriptions. Dan keeps texting her, 
Izzy doesn't respond to any of her texts, and everybody on social media is having the most fabulous life, except her. Phew, talk about a real downer of a day, a downer of a life, really. Nora hits rock bottom. She thinks her life is meaningless. She has no friends, no family, no life on social media, no prospects. Nora is totally overwhelmed by a weight of all lifetime of regrets, of second-guessing choices, of what-ifs, and decides to end it all. She writes her farewells on social media and swallows a ton of pills and lots and lots of wine. Nora wasn't sure what she was expecting. Never-ending darkness, oblivion, I don't know. Well, Nora wakes up in a strange, enormous library with shelves, full of green books as far as the eye can see, Mrs. Elm, her high school librarian, greets her. Page 29. As she spoke, Mrs. Elm's eyes came alive, twinkling like puddles in moonlight. Between life and death is a library, she said, and within that library the shelves go on forever. Every book provides a chance to try another life you could have lived, to see how things would have been different if you'd had other choices, would you have done anything different if you had the chance to undo your regrets? Wow, I mean, who wouldn't take Mrs. Elm up on her offer? Mrs. Elm shows Nora a special grey book. It's Nora's book of regrets. It's massively heavy. Every regret Nora's ever had is in that book. Page 34. There were continual background regrets which repeated on multiple pages. I regret not staying in the labyrinths because I let down my brother. I regret not staying in the labyrinths because I let down myself. I regret not doing more for the environment. I regret the time I spent on social media. I regret not going to Australia with Izzy. I regret not having more fun when I was younger. I regret all those arguments with Dad. I regret not working with animals. I regret not doing geology at university instead of philosophy. I regret not learning how to be a happier person. I regret feeling so much guilt. I regret not sticking at Spanish. I regret not choosing science subjects in my A-levels. I regret not becoming a glassologist. I regret not getting married. I regret not applying to do a master's degree in philosophy at Cambridge. I regret not keeping healthy. I regret moving to London. I regret not going to Paris to teach English. I regret not finishing the novel I started at university. I regret moving out of London. I regret having a job with no prospects. I regret not being a better sister. I regret not having a gap year after university. I regret disappointing my father. I regret that I teach piano more than I play it. I regret my financial mismanagement. I regret not living in the countryside. Some regrets were a little fainter than others. One regret shifted from practically invisible to bold and back again, as if it was flashing on and off right there as she looked at it. The regret was, I regret not yet having children. The regrets swim, and when Nora concentrates on them, they draw her in and overwhelm her. Only Nora can shut the book of regrets. The green books, on the other hand, are versions of Nora's life. If she had made different choices, 
married Dan, stayed in the band, kept fault inside, not come back to Bedford, and so on and so on. Nora can try on any countless variations of lives, fulfilling different dreams, career paths and romances, until she finds the life she loves. If she loves the life, she can stay in it, inhabiting and being overtaken by it completely. If Nora is dissatisfied with the life, though, she will return to the library. Nora is actually in a liminal space, not alive or dead. Her root body lies in a state of in-betweenness. The Midnight Library explores the concept of multiverses, where every alternative possibility happens at once. Each of the lives Nora lives, tries on, slides into, is happening in a parallel universe simultaneously. Mrs. Elm tells Nora that while death waits outside the library, as long as the Midnight Library stands, Nora will not die. The Nora we know, who tried to kill herself, is the root Nora, and she supplants a parallel Nora in another life. In each life, Nora retains the sentience of her root life. Nora's cell phone also always travels with her into each of these parallel lives, which is really rather handy, since she has to Google herself and her media accounts to orientate herself in the life that she now inhabits. The first book life Nora slides into is where she married Dan and became a pub owner in Oxfordshire. This was always Dan's dream. This Dan cheated on her. But this Dan and Nora are also trying for a baby. Dan is boring and not happy living his dream life. And it's obvious that Dan doesn't support or understand Nora's dreams. Nora returns promptly to the library. Nora next visits a life where Volt was an indoor cat. However... Nora finds Walt dead under her bed. Walt apparently had an unknown heart condition, and in the root life, the life Nora wants to escape, Walt actually didn't get run over by a car, but had a mini kitty heart attack. Nora wakes up in a beach next. In this life, she came to Australia with Izzy. Instead of living with Izzy, though, Nora is sharing a yucky apartment with an unknown roommate, Googling, Nora finds out that Izzy died in a car accident on her way to Nora's birthday party soon after coming to Australia. Back at the library, Nora asks Mrs Elm for a successful life. Nora finds herself in a plush hotel room. Googling lets Nora know that she's an Olympic gold medal swimmer with an OBE and a Wikipedia page. Wow, she hit the jackpot. This Nora is super fit successful, confident, and is a motivational speaker. However, this Nora is also seeing a therapist and is still taking antidepressants. Jo is her very stressed out and very business-like manager and is a recovering alcoholic. Her mother's still dead, but her father's alive. Nora's father had an affair and Nora's mother became an alcoholic after the breakup and died. Nora hears her father's voice for the first time in 19 years. It makes her very teary-eyed. She resents her father, though, but tells him that she loves him. Nora returns to the library after a hilarious attempt at giving a TED talk. Nora is a glaciologist on a research ship in Valbard next. During a polar bear attack, Nora realises that she really, really, really wants to live. Hugo, a colleague, reveals that he's also a slider, that there are many more like them. Hugo had an aneurysm and he is, has a video store instead of a library and Hugo's helper is his uncle Felipe. 
Hugo really relishes this new life. He's experienced 300 other lives already and tells Nora that they really are special and they're chosen. Hugo thinks that they're actually living a sort of Schrodinger's life, both dead and alive simultaneously. He theorizes that the helpers, Mrs. Elm and his uncle Felipe, could either be God, manifesting into someone who helped them in their root life, or the non-religious explanation that the human brain is simply trying to simplify a wave function. Hugo and Nora have sex and it's less than stellar. Nora is a world-famous rock star touring South America next. She's dated and ditched an actor, Ryan Bailey, who she had a crush on in her root life. Ravi is still bitter towards her and her brother Joe is dead, having overdosed two years ago. Nora opts for a gentle life afterwards. She's working at an animal shelter in Bedford and dating a guy from school who owns a bazillion dogs, is covered in hair and wants to get many more. Dylan, the boyfriend, mentions he saw Mrs. Elm at a retirement home. The more lives Nora lives, the harder it is for her to feel at home anywhere and Nora begins to lose a sense of who she is. All those lives that seemed perfect on paper, each life had pros and cons, and they're all riddled with despair, pain, regrets. None of them are perfect. Spoilers ahead. Lastly, Nora tries on the life where she went for coffee with Ash. Nora wakes up to a sweet, fulfilling, intellectual, and seemingly idyllic life. Ash and Nora have a beautiful daughter, Molly. They have a dreamy house and garden in Cambridge, Nora is a professor of philosophy at Cambridge University, although currently she's on sabbatical researching a book on her favourite philosopher, Henry Thoreau. Joe is a sound engineer, sober and in a wonderful committed relationship with Ewan, a doctor, and shares a close and supportive relationship with Nora and her family. Once Nora starts to acclimatise, she loves this life. She starts to remember people and events that she missed or actually never knew the longer she stays. A guilty Nora attempts to broach the subject of parallel lives with Ash. He thinks there's something a bit strange, since Nora appears to forget things she should know, but he sees the Nora he wants to see, and has always seen, so everything is good. Ash tells Nora she makes him feel normal. Nora starts to feel a bit of a fraud and guilty about the life that she's living. Page 248 Nora felt something inside her all at once, a kind of fear, as real as the fear she had felt on the Arctic scary face to face with the polar bear, a fear of what she was feeling, love. You could eat in the finest restaurants, you could partake in every sensual pleasure, you could sing on stage in San Paolo to 20,000 people, you could soak up whole thunderstorms of applause, you could travel to the ends of the earth, you could be followed by millions on the internet, you could win Olympic medals, but this was all meaningless without love. And when she thought of her root life, the fundamental problem with it, the thing that had left her vulnerable, really was the absence of love. Even her brother hadn't wanted her in that life. There had been no one. Once Walt had died, she loved no one, and no one had loved her back. She had been empty, her life had been empty, walking around, faking some kind of human normality, like a sentient mannequin of despair, just the bare bones of getting through. Yet there, right there in that garden in Cambridge, 
Under that dull grey sky, she felt the power of it, the terrifying power of caring deeply and being cared for deeply. Okay, her parents were still dead in this life, but here there was Molly, there was Ash, there was Joe, there was a net of love to break her fall. Laura tries to visit Mrs Elm at the retirement home in Bedford, but finds Mrs Elm died a couple of months earlier. Mr Banerjee is at the home, though. He is there since there's no one to take care of him. Nora bumps into Leo Thompson, who is a juvenile delinquent now, being taken into custody by the police. Page 256. Something Mrs Elm said on an early visit to the Midnight Library came to her. Every life contains many millions of decisions, some big, some small. But every time one decision is taken over another, the outcomes differ. An irreversible variation occurs, which in turn leads to further variations. In this timeline right now, the one where she had studied a master at Cambridge and married Ash and had a baby, she hadn't been in sting theory on the day four years ago when Doreen and Leo came by. In this timeline, Doreen never found a music teacher who was cheap enough, so Leo never persisted with music for long enough to realise he had talent. He never sat there, side by side with Nora on a Tuesday evening, pursuing a passion that he extended at home, producing his own tunes. Nora felt herself weaken, not just tingles and fuzziness, but something stronger, a sense of plunging into nothingness, accompanied by brief darkening of her vision, a feeling of another Nora right there in the wings, ready to pick up where this one left off, her brain ready to fill in the gaps and have a perfectly legitimate reason to be on a day trip to Bedford and so fill in every absence as if she was there the whole time. Worried she knew what it meant, she turned away from Leo and his friend as they were being escorted to the police car, the eyes of the whole of Bedford Street on them, and she started to quicken her pace towards the car park. This is a good life, this is a good life, this is a good life. Racing home, Nora knows she doesn't have long. She hugs Molly and tells her she loves her and Ash and will always love her. The library's on fire when Nora returns to it. She doesn't want to die. Racing to the Book of Regrets, Nora frantically writes, I am alive. Nora returns to her root life and vomits all over her duvet. She drags herself over to Mr Banerjee's house and tells him to call the ambulance. Nora knows that although her root life is troubled, it's still the best life for her. Recovering in the hospital, Nora deletes all her suicidal social media posts and posts the following letter. Page 277. A thing I have learnt, written by a nobody who has been everybody. It is easy to mourn the lives we aren't living, easy to wish we'd developed other talents, said yes to different offers, easy to wish we'd worked harder, loved better, handled our finances more astutely, been more popular, stayed in the band, gone to Australia, said yes to the coffee, done more bloody yoga. It takes no effort to miss the friends we didn't make and the work we didn't do and the people we didn't marry and the children we didn't have. 
It is not difficult to see yourself through the lens of other people and to wish you were all different kaleidoscope versions of you they wanted you to be. It's easy to regret and keep regretting an infinitum until our time runs out. But it is not the lives we regret not living that the real problem is the regret itself. It's the regret that makes us shrivel and wither and feel like our own and our other people's worst enemy. We can't tell if any of these other versions would have been better or worse. Those lives are happening, it's true, but you are happening as well and that is the happening we have to focus on. Of course, we can't visit every place or meet every person or do every job, yet most of what we feel in any life is still available. We don't have to play every game to know what winning feels like. We don't have to hear every piece of music in the world to understand music. We don't have to have tried every variety of grape from every vineyard to know the pleasure of wine. Love and laughter and fear and pain are universal currencies. We have to close our eyes and savour the taste of the drink in front of us and listen to the song as it plays. We are as completely and utterly alive as we are in any other life and have access to the same emotional spectrum. We only need to be one person. We only need to feel one existence. We don't have to do everything in order to be everything because we already are infinite. While we are alive, we always contain a future of multifarious possibility. So let's be kind to the people in our own existence. Let's occasionally look up from the spot in which we are because whatever we happen to be standing, the sky above goes on forever. Yesterday, I knew I had a new future and that it was impossible for me to accept my life as it is now. And yet today, that same messy life seems to be full of hope, potential. The impossible, I suppose, happens via living. Will my life be miraculously free from pain, despair, grief, heartbreak, hardship, loneliness, depression? No. But do I want to live? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Joe visits Nora in the hospital. He's been battling his own mental health demons, trying to turn his life around. He tells her he loves her and always loved her and will try to support her. Nora tells Joe to apply to be a sound engineer and ask Ewan out. Back home, Mr Banerjee is joyful to see Nora. Leo's mother calls to resume the piano lessons. Izzy texts to say she's coming back to England and Nora resolves to ask Ash out for coffee. The book ends on a high point with Nora visiting and playing chess with the lonely and grateful Mrs Elm in the retirement home. I enjoyed The Midnight Library. It's a heartwarming, thought-provoking and ultimately an uplifting book. It's not a big book, about 288 pages long. Matt Haig tells Nora's story with brevity, using simple language and really gets straight to the point. The chapters are incredibly short. Some are only a page or two long. Sometimes the chapters felt too short. I whipped through the book in two days. There aren't many surprises in The Midnight Library. The ending itself is not hard to guess. And not a lot of action happens, but a lot happens in terms of the emotional and philosophical understanding and movement. 
I love the theme of pushing aside your regrets, embracing the potential and beauty of a messy life, and embracing the here and now, choosing the moment you are in and fully living it. So my daughter made us watch a bunch of Christmas movies in the run-up to the holidays. It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol featured big on that list. It's a Wonderful Life apparently inspired Matt Haig to write The Midnight Library. Nora finally realises, just like George Bailey, how her life has positively and profoundly impacted many other lives in her sphere. Leo, who without the piano lessons becomes a delinquent in a night of prison, and Mr Banerjee, lonely and confused in a retirement home. And Scrooge's past regrets and bitterness hold him back from fully living in the moment and creating a good future. So the Christmas ghosts shock Scrooge and wake him up to fully appreciate and live in the present. Mrs Elm and the library serve analogous functions as the Christmas carol ghosts and Clarence, the angel from Wonderful Life in Nora's life. I love the exploration of quantum physics, multiverses and parallel lives. I was really fascinated by the mechanism of Nora trying on multiple lives, experiencing each life, their shades, variation, tones, seeing the pros and cons, despair, pain and regrets, and allowing Nora an appreciation of her root life and her strengths. I did wonder what happened to the versions of herself that she displaced in each life. Where did they go? What happened to them? And what would have happened to the actual Nora that was married to Ash if the root Nora decided to stay in that life? Also, were there repercussions of root Nora sliding in and out of all of those parallel lives? A sort of butterfly effect um, in those lives that we never actually get to find out. One of the things I didn't enjoy about the Midnight Library was the lack of character development. Only Nora had some depth to her, and the other characters sometimes felt as they were there or only existed to make some sort of point. Many characters felt shallow and their motivations were rarely explored. We have no idea of the joys and pains uh, and the despairs of the other people inhabiting that same universe as Nora. And we have no idea where, why Ash needs to feel normal. What was his backstory? I know the book is about Nora's narrative, but I would have liked a bit of the backstory of the other people's lives. Nora also is not perceptive about issues in her root life, but somehow can clearly see and pinpoint the problems in the other versions of her lives. That just didn't seem very consistent. The constant shifting from life to life often felt very hurried and episodic, so maybe this contributed to a feeling of character underdevelopment. I didn't feel very vested in any of the lives Nora visited, except the last one with Ash. Maybe that's what Haig wanted me to feel. I did feel like Nora, that maybe the next life would get better, the grass would be greener on the other side, uh, only to feel deflated at the messiness and boringness and ultimately the sameness of it all. The only other quibble I had with the book was the idea that Nora was born with an infant number of gifts and talents. I started to think, are we all really born with such infinite potential? Here are some book club questions. Would you do anything different if you had the chance to do any regret in your life? Nora was unable to cope with the expectations that different people in her life attached to her. What expectations do people in your life have of you and have, have you resolved them? A character in the book says that the happiest version of yourself is the most authentic. 
Do you think we only have one authentic self? Nora perceives those who are very active on multiple media sites as being wildly happy and fulfilled. How has social media impacted our ideas of a good and happy life? The book quotes Sartre, life begins on the other side of despair. What does this mean and how does the Midnight Library address this? Do you think depression is normal? Overall, I enjoyed the Midnight Library and its message of finding fulfillment in the life we have been given and learning to live with regret and the choices we have made. I hope you have a chance to read it. Bye-bye.